0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You're the mom, the maid,
1: the keeper of the cookies. You do it all and you look good doing it. It's parenthood on a mother level. Here's your host, Denise Hanitka. Hello everyone, welcome to On a Mother Level. I'm Denise Sinitka, and I'm so glad you are here for this episode. If you're brand new to the podcast, welcome to you. This is episode 72, and I've been sitting on this interview for a minute, but I cannot wait to share it with you because my guest today is Julian Reeve. Okay. Julian was the music director for the biggest musical on Broadway, Hamilton. Okay? Hamilton, the Hamilton. This was the peak of his career top of his game, the ultimate achievement. But in the middle of a performance in Puerto Rico, he knew it would be his last show ever because of a debilitating injury that left him unable to ever conduct like that again. He talks about the pain of making that decision, the literal pain of making that decision, But out of that comes this new goal for him, and that's why he's here talking to me today. It has really required this deep dive into who he is as a person, a key character trait, and that is perfectionism. Here's how he describes it. Perfectionism helped me get to the top 1% of a highly competitive industry, but it also played a considerable role in the heart attack I experienced several months into the job. Perfectionism's like that, he says. The healthy part elevates you to your dreams, drives you to get better. It gives you the juice to beat out the competition, the permission to be successful. But on the other hand, unhealthy perfectionism can drive you crazy, pushes you harder and harder to be better than the day before until your mind and body literally break. That is exactly what happened to him. And so he's here to talk about what he's learned. He's here to talk to us as parents about our level of expectations and perfection and about self-compassion and how we extend that to our kids, especially if we see that they might have some of those perfectionist traits like he did as a young man. So it's about embracing this about ourselves, making it really work for us. And if you're fans of the musical... You will hear a lot about that as well, with some highlights from his time on the show that truly gave me goosebumps to hear him tell. It's so cool because he's the type of person whose passion just leaps right off the screen as we're doing this Zoom, and I just so enjoyed hearing his perspective and hearing how someone at the top of their game can learn so much about themselves still At that point. So, there's so much for us to learn about ourselves, about our kids, and the one thing he says that we all need to do differently when we wake up in the morning. So, stay tuned for that. So, without further ado, let's go and meet him. This is Julian Reeve. Well, I have so many things that I want to talk to you about, and I think where I want to start is, you know, when I first started doing my research into you, you know, if if what I saw was correct, you don't have any children of your own. Correct. And so this is kind of a, you know, a parenting motherhood podcast. And I thought, I wonder, I wonder why he's taking this concept and turning it into a children's book. But then the more and more I read about you, and the more, um, you know, after watching your TED talk, it made so much sense. So tell the listeners why approach it from the child's perspective and the childhood angle.
2: Sure. Well, when I was growing up, so I was born in 1974. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a very perfectionistic household, but none of us really discussed the subject because. It wasn't a subject that was well known, um, and certainly both of my my parents were perfectionists, but they didn't know that they were perfectionists. A perfectionist uh, or perfectionism kind of wasn't really studied in any great detail until the early nineteen nineties. For those of us kind of born in the seventies, eighties, and, and prior to that, often grew up as perfectionists or in perfectionistic households without us really understanding it. So, in answer to the question, why did why did I write this book? Well, I basically wrote this book to be the book that I wish I would have read at the age group that I'm kind of targeting this for, which is kind of six plus. It approaches perfectionism from the point of view that, you know, it can be used in positive ways, but there are very many negative connotations that need looking after. And I suppose really what I wanted to do in my work with children was to empower them to be able to manage their traits in healthier ways early perfectionism is both a genetic disorder if you like um, and it's also a learned behavior and perfectionism in children kind of you know can start very early so the more awareness that we can bring to that and the more um, skills and tools we can give them to be able to handle uh, what that means early on in life will then equip them for the rest of their life and you know very many of the of the kind of tools that i offer kids in this book can be used when they're 50 you know so it's it's important stuff
1: at the start of your ted talk you begin by describing this electric night that you had in puerto rico and mm-hmm. it ended up being the last time you conducted hamilton but i wonder if you would take me back before then to the night that you had the heart attack in San Francisco what happened that evening?
2: Yeah so uh, I think it was a, it was a Friday night um, and I just conducted the show. Uh, it was a relatively normal week leading up to that point. And I was living in Castro in, uh, in San Francisco. And those, those of you who know it will, um, will appreciate that, that it's, a, it's a kind of quite a hilly area of San Fran. And I decided to walk home after, after the show. Anyway, I got to the, the, uh, the, the top of the hill just before turning right to, to my house. And I started sweating and I was uh, very nauseous and I had started experiencing shooting pains down my left arm. And I was like, Ooh, OK, this is this isn't normal. This isn't. I managed to make it home and I calmed myself down and the symptoms kind of went away. So I thought, OK, well, I'm just going to go to bed and see how I see how I feel tomorrow. Uh, I woke up in the morning and I didn't feel too bad, so much so that I actually went to the gym. I went to the gym and I managed half a K on the on the treadmill. I mean, normally I'm a six, seven K guy. So, you know, half a K and having problems is a real, is a real issue. And again, I started experiencing these sorts of symptoms. I managed to walk to the theatre. I had a quick nap and this was a Saturday. So uh, there were two shows that day. I kind of, I felt well enough and wanted to push myself through the show. So I actually conducted the show in the afternoon. Apparently I came off stage Having, condu- having finished the, the matinee, I was completely white, nauseous again, sweating, very, very pale. And I just thought, I'm just going to have a, another quick sleep um, and then get something to eat. I woke up two hours later. My body just completely shut down. Um, and in the end, I, I put my associate on for, for the evening show he conducted and I went out front to note. I made it home. And then on the Sunday, I woke up and had those similar kind of of symptoms in the morning. And it's then when I got hold of a doctor, I went to ER, they strapped me up to an EKG and they said, yeah, you've had a mild heart attack. So I I actually had the heart attack on the Friday night um, and all of the Saturday and the Sunday morning uh, was spent kind of, you know, subconsciously trying to deal with what that meant. Uh, and then obviously once I was checked in, we were able to, to deal with it. And they, they put two stents in, I took a week off work and then, uh, then I was back to it.
1: Were you blown away that you had gone essentially 48 hours after having a heart attack and just not feeling right, but not really knowing what was going on?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, hindsight is, is a great thing with this sort of thing, but It's typical of my personality up to to that date, and it's typical of my commitment to what I do. You know, it's a very perfectionistic approach, if you like, to a heart attack is, you know, have it on the Friday, but, you know, push through, do your best, show up. Be, be the best that you can be, whether you've had a heart attack or not, and only really admit the fact that you can't be the best that you can be when actually your body is really telling you that, that something's wrong, which was certainly true by the Sunday morning.
1: So at that point, took a week off and then it was back to work. Did you make any other changes at that time?
2: Well, it, it was really interesting because the, the, the week off was going very well. And three or four days after I'd had the stents placed, I started to res- I started to feel very similar symptoms. And it turns out that the stent or one of the stents had failed. So we needed to go back in and do another angiogram and another stent placement. Um, so that kind of pushed me back a bit. I was, it was a very, very stressful uh, period, so much so that I actually checked myself into the ER for a third time. So the first time was for the heart attack, the second time, and was when I'm still feeling rough. And that's when the first stent had failed. The third time was probably about three days after that. And, you know, I still wasn't feeling right. And I checked myself into to the ER and I was hyperventilating. The the nurse was trying to, to calm me down. And in, in the end, he just said, Julian, look at the monitor, look at the oxygen level in your body. And I had a 100% oxygen level in my body, yet I was still hyperventilating. So I was clearly at a point of big distress, couldn't quite cope. And so going back to work was a really interesting time because obviously the body was still having to adapt to the stress that it had been through. And, you know, performing in front of 2,000 people every night in the world's biggest musical at the time, it's a stressful environment. And for probably, I would say, three weeks after going back to work, I would regularly experience numbness in my left hand, uh, shooting pain down my left arm, whilst conducting the show, whilst playing the piano during the show, which unless you're able to kind of regulate uh, your, your mind and really put yourself in a, in a, in a zone uh, is very, very difficult. And so that's, that's what I had to do. Once I persuaded myself that actually I wasn't dying and I, you know, I wasn't having another heart attack whilst, whilst performing, it got easier. But yeah, that's certainly the first kind of three or four weeks were, um, were tricky in that regard.
1: Well, I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes. And like you said, it's the world's biggest musical at this time. And is this the peak of your career for you? Like, you know, where sure. are you at mentally?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and I think that was a lot to do with my choices. We all work incredibly hard to um, achieve. And we all work incredibly hard to, you know, climb the ladder and, and try and get as high as we, we can. And certainly Hamilton was, was at the very top of that ladder for me. And so that's not something you want to give up easily. That's not something you want to be perceived to be failing at. That's not something you want to be having any form of negative connotation attached to at all, period. So the idea of having a heart attack on a Friday and conducting a show on a Saturday afternoon, when you're in that zone and also you're operating at a very high performance level, and that doesn't mean just going to work and and performing. It means you're in a mindset 24 hours a day Uh, seven days a week, because you have to be, to be able to perform at that level. Um, And obviously being the music director, you know, it was, it was way, it was above and beyond just my performance. It was everybody's performance. I was in charge of the creative element, certainly musically. It's not something that you, that you want any negative attachment to, which I think explains a lot of my attitude towards what happened.
1: So then take me then to that night in Puerto Rico, what happens that evening?
2: Yeah, I mean, so just a, a quick kind of backstory that gets us from the heart attack to, to Puerto Rico. I kind of, you know, got over the heart attack relatively quickly, managed to get to the root of the problem, started putting more, you know, healthy approaches to work in place. And the heart attack was kind of uh, May 2017. Um, and I would continue with Hamilton into 2018. Kind of around March 2018, I began to experience some issues in my right arm and my right thumb and hand and shoulder. Uh, Long story short, they got dramatically worse um, over a period of time. This was a repetitive strain injury, effectively, from being on the show for too long uh, and from playing the show for too long. And that culminated in getting to Puerto Rico Conducting the show with Lin Manuel Miranda playing Hamilton, uh, which was an incredible experience uh, creatively as well as culturally. All sorts of wonderful uh, memories from that time. But sadly, the injury had got so bad that that I was in a lot of pain when when I was when I was uh, conducting the show, and I, I I got halfway through a show and I just thought I cannot do this anymore. It it was it was almost like an out of body experience where. Somebody else or something else kind of made the decision for me because in hindsight, I probably should have made that decision sooner. But as we just talked about, you know, this was I was at the top of the game. You don't you don't just quit. And I'd taken time off and, you know, I'd, I'd had physical therapy. The physical therapy was ongoing. Uh, you know, I tried a lot of different things. But, you know, living, living with an injury, as any professional athlete or performer will tell you, performing with an injury is all consuming. It's incredibly tiring. Uh, and by that point, by the time I'd chosen to leave, I was eight months into that journey. And I was done. I mean, physically and mentally, I had nothing left. Um, and that's when I think the universe was like, "Okay, Junior, we need this to stop. This won't be easy, but you know things can't go on as they are. So it's it's time to leave." And yeah, I you know it, it was I talked to Lynn first. I think uh, I talked to to my immediate boss prior to that, and then uh, I addressed the rest of the company. Um, and I flew home a day later. Like it was it happened very quickly.
1: Those conversations must have been so difficult.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's weird kind of looking back. I think the overwhelming feeling I felt whilst having those conversations was relief. And so they perhaps would have been harder. Like the reason why it took eight months to get to that point is that I was determined to get to the very end of the road before giving up or being forced to give up. And I tried everything. And so the admittance that there was simply nothing left to give was actually like, ah, oh, okay. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. It was very, very difficult. I mean, I, I, I spent more of the day that I actually left the show in tears than not. It was incredibly emotional, and it took me months to get over it. But I think the immediate kind of the instincts and the immediate conversations I had with people like Lynn and cast members and producers was one of actually strangely positivity it was important to me to leave in a way that was positive so for example and this this is kind of testament to where i was the reason why i left puerto rico so quickly was that i wasn't forced to leave quickly i'd actually decided i would had the kind of okay this can't go on uh during the wednesday of the final week and so I I talked to my superiors on the Thursday and the cast on the Thursday and I left on the Friday. The reason being was that the final weekend, the Saturday and Sunday, was going to be huge. There was going to be a lot of media attention. Uh, the Clintons, Bill and Hillary Clinton, were coming to see the show on the Sunday. They're big big fans of Lin's, um, good friends of his, and you know the whole experience for Hamilton on Puerto Rico and what we achieved for the island, you know, we 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 generated over 15 million dollars for for the arts and for hurricane relief. And it was a huge exercise being there. And I didn't want that to be about me. I, I didn't want that whole thing to be. Oh, wow, Jules is leaving because, of course, the show wasn't just stopping. It was finishing in Puerto Rico and then coming back to San Francisco, where it would sit for up to two years. And so that's why I, I acted in the way that I did and got out when uh, as, as soon as I did, because it was important to me to leave, leave the show in the most positive light that I could.
1: And so was that when you really started diving into this concept of perfectionism and doing the work around it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the, the kind of the perfectionism element I'd been aware of around the time of the heart attack. To kind of get me through the experience, I started seeing a psychologist and we we sort of dug into the reasons for the heart attack. Um, The physical reasons for the heart attack was was the fact that my uh, right coronary artery was 90% blocked. Cardiologist was like, dude, you're so lucky. This was hanging on by a thread. Then when you dig into, well, why did that happen? Again, very long story short, I spent much of my 20s and 30s uh, in all sorts of weird and wonderful places, having many, many, many nights of uh, debauchery and fun. But a lot of that, sadly, was associated with my incredibly low self-esteem. All of that was generated by my maladaptive perfectionism. So there I was in my 20s and 30s, kind of building a successful career in business, uh, music, um, education, um, using my adaptive perfectionism to kind of achieve, but having to deal with all the, the stuff that maladaptive perfectionism made me feel. And it really wasn't a a nice or a healthy place. And I certainly didn't value myself enough to look after myself properly. Um, In fact, I went completely the other side of that scale and did a lot of damage subconsciously. And that's really where where the heart attack came from. So the immediate kind of work that I needed to do to be able to continue to perform at the highest level was less to do with the physicality um, and stuff like lifestyle, exercise, diet, all of that. I'd actually dealt with years before, five five or six years, actually probably longer than that. I'd kind of you know, got into much healthier habits, but by then the damage had been done. So the real work that needed to be done after the heart attack was much more to do with the psychological element of my perfectionism in in, in particular. And so it, it's then that kind of, you know, I started diving into authors like Brené Brown. I mean, Brené's book, The Gifts of Imperfection, was, I think, the first book that I read after the heart attack and through my work with a psychologist. And that really started to open the door with, you know, what I needed to do to be able to live with perfectionism successfully. So when I left Hamilton, I was kind of in this void of like, wow, well, what comes next? You know, it's like the the injury has since proven serious enough to be career ending. So I had to go through all of that kind of, you know, I, I had to try and fix myself and then be faced with a surgeon basically saying to me, there is no point in surgery you can't do what you used to do anymore. I'm like, okay, so let's deal with that. That took a minute, as you can imagine. But kind of on that journey, I was very fortunate to um, have conversations with the producers of uh, TEDx in Santa Barbara they were aware of my story and they were kind of interested in having me speak later on that year, uh, November, it would have been 2019. And so we started talking, you know, and originally I was going to go down the kind of leadership route, similar kind of roads on that subject. And then perfectionism kind of popped up in a conversation and we started throwing that around. And actually it was then that I thought, you know what, that feels like the right thing to be talking about. It feels like I have something to offer in that regard. It speaks to my experience. It speaks to my expertise. This could actually be really useful, and so it began. Um, so you know, I, I wrote the the talk, um, had some coaching with Kimberly Vile, who's an incredible storytelling coach uh, based in in Santa Barbara, um, and yeah, we we did the talk November two thousand nineteen.
1: Well, and the purpose of the talk is we're not curing perfectionism. We're not looking to eliminate this from our lives. We're looking to, to change the way that we view it. Expand on that for me. How are we changing the concept of perfectionism?
2: <laughs> sure. Well, the, the, the talk, if you want to check it out, it's uh, called "Reframing Perfectionism: uh, The Vital Need for Change." And in the talk, I very much argue uh, that we need to be considering perfectionism differently. As you may have gleaned from, from everything I've said so far, There, it's important to, to remember that perfectionism is multidimensional. There are good parts and there are bad parts. So if we call the good parts adaptive and we call the bad parts maladaptive, the talk kind of takes us through how we need to regard perfectionism as uh, in, in those two ways. So the adaptive side. So my, my career, for example, I've used adaptive perfectionism and everything that comes comes with that um, very effectively. Um, and that's kind of, you know, without perfectionism, I wouldn't have been able to to get my job on Hamilton. It's very, very simple. But obviously that comes with the maladaptive side, the low self-esteem, the anxiety, the depression, the burnout. And, you know, there's a lot of menu shy in the middle of that. But the talk actually centers around something called self-compassion. And the reason why it centers around that is that self-compassion is proven to regulate our experience with depression. So if you actually put self-compassion between ourselves and maladaptive perfectionism, it actually then prevents the further decline into depression. The talk basically teaches us that society's message right now is You know, uh, I'm thinking of of a headline, 10 Ways to Overcome Your Toxic Perfectionism, for example. Those types of titles actually, they provoke some kind of physical reaction in me. I actually get really angry with those types of titles for two reasons. Number one, because as we just talked about, the adaptive side can be very, very useful to us. But two, perfectionists value their perfectionism. And as a result, they don't want to overcome it. So the, the message that we should overcome it, that it's toxic, that if we don't, we're going to you know, experience all these bad things is on the right lines, but we're not getting perfectionist to the plate. So a lot of my work now is um, focusing on using self-compassion. To get perfectionists to the plate. So effectively, what I do now is instead of promising to overcome their perfectionism, what I'm asking society to actually do is try and persuade a perfectionist that you're going to make them better. So my whole approach is I'm not going to take your perfectionism away. I'm going to enhance it. And how I'm going to enhance it is I'm going to teach you self-compassion, which will help you better benefit from your adaptive side whilst better managing your maladaptive. So all I'm really doing is massaging what what you've already got to figure out the parts that you let's, let's say, for example, that the perfectionism that you value is the fact that your attention to detail is outstanding. I'm going to go, okay, great. If that's the top of the list, I am going to. Maximize your potential in attention to detail. Okay, Julian, how are you going to do that? All right. What is the part that you hate about your perfectionism? Well, I dislike the fact that I really struggle with low self-esteem and I don't feel as though I have anything to say. All right, great. So how about we address the bit that you don't like so that actually it frees you up to address the, the bits that you do like in better and healthier ways. And that's much of my work. Uh, another element of it is if you're the type of perfectionist, which I'm not, where, you know, your fridge has to be in alphabetical order, otherwise you just go crazy. You know, well, my fridge has to be perfectly clean and it has to be, you know, everything's got to be in the right place. I work a lot with people on on prioritising perfectionism. You know, the, the whole idea behind the, the prioritizing is you know wh- which are the parts that are most important to you now let's say that the same person that's that's uh, got issues with their fridge is also wanting to be the best at presentations at work. Well okay which is more important the fridge or the work and you go well the work obviously okay so then why don't we worry less about the about the fridge? well I can't you know the fridge has to be completely perfect. And then that's when the, the the work goes in to persuade people that actually, you know, does it really? And you know, a, a simple one with with that analogy is how many people see your fridge other than you do, you know. And so, why do you stress so much about the fact that it needs to be to be perfect on the work front? Of course, you're in a public situation, and therefore, you know, your your perfectionism arguably needs to be. Um, you know, more in more in tune. Um, so that that kind of prioritization work is that it can be really valuable just to kind of maximize people's thoughts about about their perfectionism.
1: Well, and you know, perfectionism at work is an interesting thing because, for example, I work in television news. You know, it's a pretty precise industry and the fact that we've got to get these facts right and there's a lot of visual components and sometimes I feel like perfectionism in the workplace has become a little bit of a and maybe it's because I'm you know I'm coming from a female perspective but it's like if you're a perfectionist at work it's also that means you're overbearing. That means you're, you know, you expect too much of people who are still learning, yep. you know, so it's not just how we view ourselves as perfectionists, but how we think other people view us too. And if, and if they feel like we're making life harder for them because of our standards, you yep. know?
2: Absolutely. Uh, you know, much of the work that I do with businesses is to create a culture that actually allows perfectionists to thrive and how we do that is we have to change the perception of perfectionists so let's say you're on the shop floor you're in front of the camera you've got certain perfectionistic ways that actually make you excel at what you do there has to be uh, an understanding from the people that employ you that yes there might be negative parts to to what you what you bring but that that needs to be understood and manipulated and worked with in a positive way to actually help you achieve even more. What I try and do is actually put the responsibility as much on the bosses as I do on the employees, because by creating a culture where you feel safe to be completely you, and bosses are able, because they see the complete you, to go, okay, well, these are the bits that, that we really value. These are the bits that she clearly finds difficult. How can we all work together to actually get through this? It, it's, it delves deeper into the, the kind of psyche of every employee to actually really get the best out of them. So performance goes up, employee retention stays stays high, People have to take less time off because they're happier at work. You know, there are so many different benefits to all of this.
1: Yeah, I think it almost reminds me of the Enneagram, you know, where when you figure out who you are and who your people are, you're not trying to retrain anybody, but you're trying right. to get people to understand what makes you tick, why yeah. you are the way you are, and yeah. how all of those things can mesh together.
2: Yeah. And you know, it's it's vitally vitally important that we start to look at cultures like that because you know there are still too many businesses that are that are just results based um and it's you know well if you if you if you hit the sales targets great if you don't bad news sorry you're out um and you know it's it what's interesting is that the a a lot of the problem that perfectionists face is that they are themselves very results based and so I try and encourage through my work to actually value the experience of getting to the result as much, if not more so, than the result itself. And if you then introduce that into business and into culture, um, it's actually really interesting. You know, if we, if we start to value a conversation because of the depth of what was in it rather than where the conversation got us from to understanding that the depth of the conversation can take us into many more areas and so therefore there's tremendous value in that we're going to start to work in very very different ways listeners won't be able to to look at this but instead of imagine pointing in front of you rather than thinking that way you're actually thinking in a round way so you're using both hands to draw around a globe you're still getting to the same destination but instead of driving completely forward towards it you're actually globally approaching it so you're making the experience much more valuable and that's a really interesting approach with perfectionism
1: can you clarify what you mean by the concept of self-compassion? What does that sure. mean to you in your everyday life?
2: Well, self-compassion. So, Kristin Neff is kind of the, the, the leading psychologist on this, and she actually puts it into three components. Um, so, there are there's self-kindness, mindfulness, and common humanity. So, self-kindness is where we learn to be warm and understanding with ourselves. Mindfulness is where we discover how to observe thoughts and feelings as they arise, but not necessarily to suppress or react to them. And then common humanity is simply where we recognise that suffering and imperfection is part of the human experience. So self-compassion and, and those three elements are actually re- super useful in every uh, walk of life. And it's important to kind of you know get over self-compassion is kind of You know, it's got sort of myths attached to it. You know, it's that kind of particularly with perfectionists, um, you know, and it's important to to, you know, make us it's important to realize that it doesn't make us weak or lazy. I mean, it just doesn't. Um, And that it's not self-pity or self-indulgent in any way. Um, and it, you know there are a lot of positive aspects with uh, self-compassion because when we're compassionate, the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the part that calms us down, switches on. Um, all of this is is actually in the in the TED talk. More blood flows to the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that does most of our thinking. A hormone called oxytocin flows more freely, which helps us maintain lower levels of stress. So you know, self-compassion is. Hugely useful in, in many ways. And it just kind of needs a slightly softer acceptance, if you like, to, to kind of yeah, be be able to do a lot of good.
1: Well, my listeners are moms, and moms are notoriously terrible at being kind to themselves. Sure. I mean, it's it's the perfect message for the moms out there because we we are hard on ourselves and we always feel like we're not showing up for somebody or for something.
2: Right. I have no idea how young parents in particular or parents of young children, how how they do it, Um, because so much of it relies on the parent being able to be in a degree of control and positivity and all of that. And, you know, pretty much everything that they face, certainly in the early years, directly affronts that that position. And, you know, it's very, very difficult. And I think, you know, one of the bigger things that we can try to, to figure out, and I, I completely understand that this is much harder with children um, than without, is simply establishing some kind of routine that gets us to a place where we can at least regulate ourselves. So, for example, first thing in the morning, I, I've realized that I will react to an email badly or I, there is more opportunity for me to react to an email badly if I haven't regulated myself before I read it. And so, nine times out of ten, a perfectionist or anyone who is you know ambitious or wants to do good at something, so parents, for example, this is actually a really exercise, a really interesting exercise that I do with some clients. What's the very first thought that you have every day? So tomorrow, well, after you've listened to this. The minute you wake up, what's your first thought? And I'm not going to guarantee this, but I'd be super interested for you to figure that out because certainly for me, nine times out of ten, it's negative. In fact, probably nine and a half times out of ten, it's negative. So I'm not even conscious yet, right? I'm still sleep orientated. I'm still waking up. I'm still like, okay, and I'm already giving myself a hard time. I'm just programmed to be that guy, right? It's really important that if my if I'm hardwired like that, that I actually regulate myself to put myself into a better position to be more aware of me as I take myself into my day. So what I what I do, I meditate for 10 minutes, I do yoga for 20, and that half an hour actually, before I do anything, simply allows me to move forward in, in much more positive ways than not. Now, I completely understand as parents that's incredibly difficult because who has the luxury of, oh, yeah, I have 30 minutes today to start my day in the way that Julian does. Awesome. <laughs> um, of course, that's, you know, not not um, something that that many people can, can actually achieve. But I will say that the be- beauty of self-compassion and the beauty of stuff like mantras, even simple breathing techniques, And getting in touch with the breath can be done in 60 seconds, 90 seconds. And it's not something that you have to go, right, I have to do this. And once I've done this, then, you know, I can carry on my day. You don't necessarily have to look at it like I do. You can actually take 30 minutes and spread them out throughout your day. And actually, when you're boiling the kettle or when you're grabbing the milk for the next feed or whatever it looks like, You've, you've got 30 seconds to actually breathe at that point. And when I say breathe, it means breathe as in from the diaphragm so that we're able to get the oxygen, get the air that we need. We're able to calm the mind, which then means that whatever happens next is better regulated to our better us as opposed to the side of us that reacts to stress and everything else.
1: I'm really going to pay attention to that morning thought because if I'm just off the top of my head, I feel like it's always, what time is it? And do I have five more minutes? <laughs> you know, okay. well, Yeah. That, so well, maybe that's... Not totally negative, but it's definitely, you're setting your, it's like you automatically kind of tense and go, ah, you know, like right. what, what is the next minute going to hold?
2: Right. And you know, if, if you're, if you're trying to grab another five minutes, why are you trying to grab another five minutes? right? right. You know, it, it, where, where's the, okay, great. I'm awake. Awesome. Let's go. You know, it's, if you're trying to grab another five minutes, it's all right. Life's life's much better down here. Thanks under the duvet and, you know, in, in this nice warm place. Um, so that might need a bit, bit more thought too.
1: Definitely. I um, want to let you go here in just a few but I really would be remiss if I didn't ask just a few questions about the show if you don't mind. Um, uh, So first of all, I mean, here we are in this pandemic situation Broadway has been shut down. Um, can, can you speak to just, um, you know, the hardship of not having this aspect of life right now and, you know, these performers and musicians and everybody who, who hasn't been doing this thing that courses through their veins for months and almost a full year.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been, it's, it's been very, very difficult. Uh, I, I, obviously I'm not speaking about myself now because I'm out of the business, but you know. I obviously still have very many friends um, still involved and you know I I think one of the one of the things that I've been um, very conscious of is that creative people are incredibly resilient and they have without fail actually probably all of my friends have found different ways to get their creativity out they have found kind of new passions and you know new ways to communicate so the love of the stage and what the, what they, what they get from an audience, for example, they've transferred to being able to get from, you know, group classes on zoom or, you know, some of them have actually gone completely left field and done something very, very different. You know, I've got friends that were uh, in, in, Broadway shows that now run run leather making businesses, because they've you know they've simply transferred their creative skills and their desires in 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 that way and and put them somewhere else. But what I'm so looking forward to is what I can only imagine will be an explosion of complete joy from the performance point. Point of view, but also the audiences. You know, I I I think I'm I'm actually I'm I'm getting tingles just even thinking about it because, you know, like just imagine being in, in a theater the next time that you're there and imagine that you know we're all vaccined and we're all safe and everything's cool. The energy that's going to come off that stage for a start is going to be go is going to be probably 35, 40% higher than it would have been previously because everyone's like wow did i take this for granted before the pandemic and every if if they every part of their kind of you know living breathing soul wasn't on on the stage before it certainly will be now so you're going to get that extra level up there but imagine the electricity in the audience I'd, i went to um, went to the Stranger Things kind of live interactive experience in LA recently. And just to see live actors on stage um, gave me such a thrill. And I was in my car, you know, the, the, this was like, I wasn't sat next to anyone. There was I couldn't hear anybody else, you know. I was tuned into the FM to get the sound from the from the show. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm going to be really excited for, for all of us to experience that again, for sure.
1: Oh gosh your your passion for this just like jumps through the screen and you and you gave me those same tingles about thinking about sitting in a seat. The last um performance that I was at was maybe maybe two years ago and I saw The Lion King in Chicago, and just mm-hmm. like those first notes come out, and when I think back to it, it's like it brings tears to your eyes because you're just your whole body's consumed with this music, and wow, it's like. You don't realize how much you miss it until you can't do it.
2: There you go. You don't know what you got till, till it's gone. Yeah.
1: Could you share a favorite memory that you have of working on Hamilton?
2: Uh, yeah, I'll share too quickly. Uh, yeah. my, my, second, uh, my second ever rehearsal for the show was actually the day after the Tony Awards. Um, and it was at the theater. Um, so and I, I traveled into, uh, I used to live in Hoboken, New Jersey. Uh, which is over the Hudson, a mile away from where Alexander Hamilton was shot, uh, from where the duel took place with Aaron Burr. Um, so I travelled to the theatre um, pretty much in the same way that Alexander Hamilton would have travelled back to Manhattan on his last ever journey back to Manhattan. Uh, and it was obviously the day after the Tony Awards. So, you know, the, the buzz in the city was was incredible. Um, we were rehearsing the room where it happens. I mean, literally, you can't write write this stuff. We were rehearsing the room where it happens, um, and uh, out of nowhere, Lim Manuel Miranda came in, and he came in with his two Tony awards that he'd won personally the night before, and he walked across the stage mid-rehearsal and put them down center stage, and just went boom, and the 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 I mean, just the whole place just went completely crazy. And I just thought, hey, is this my life right now? You know, yeah. this is like the, the it, yeah, that that was really cool. And a, another one was actually uh, conducting the show at the Kennedy Center in, uh, in DC, where I'd gotten to such a place of self-compassion and kind of my journey with perfectionism and all that stuff that um, I'd I'd kind of, I'd meditated, I'd kind of done my breathing and all that stuff before the show. And I'd somehow got myself into this place of complete relaxation. Um, And cutting a long story short, I spent the majority of the show three feet above myself, watching myself conduct. But I was able to watch myself conduct the show from a 360 degree angle. So I was able to see what was behind me. I was able to see what was in front of me. So it was a complete global experience for three hours of that show. Um, and I actually I got into my dressing room and I, I, I ended up in tears because it was such a um, incredible Experience. it was almost this out-of-body thing because it didn't last like five minutes. This lasted pretty much the whole show. Um, And to be so relaxed that actually you perform your best because you're completely f- free of fear of failure. You're completely free of anything outside of simply flow. And I was in a true flow state, enough to actually put enough trust in Well, oh, yeah. Well, what happens if I go even higher and watch myself? What happens if and I put all the trust in almost something else in getting me through my own performance in front of two and a half thousand people? Um, Yeah, it was very, very powerful and something I'll never, never forget for sure.
1: Wow. Well, I'm glad you have those memories. And I very much admire this pivot that you're doing in life where you're taking these experiences and turning them into a whole new career path for yourself. So um, congratulations to you you. um, on your book. It is called Captain Perfection, and the secret of self-compassion tell people when and where they can yeah, so get it
2: right now i um, not entirely sure when when you're going live with this but right now it's it's available on amazon it's certainly going to be a, uh, available in in wider um, parameters very soon um barnes and noble target things like that um but yeah and and check out check out the website captain hyphen perfection.com or my website julianreeve.com there's there's plenty of um Certainly on the Captain Perfection site, there's some really uh, cool and useful uh, exercises for, for self-compassion, which um, have been very valuable for people with homeschooling and, and those sorts of things, which has been fun. But yeah, and and for, for those thinking that, you know, well, this, this is a kid's book. Trust me, I, I'm very blown away by the by the reviews because they're, they're all basically saying this is equally useful for adults as, as it is for kids. Um, so even if you you know, if you're an adult struggling with perfectionism, there's probably something in there for you, too.
1: All right. I love that so much. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate Thank it Thank you so much for having me. My thanks to Julian for the interview. It was such a delight spending an hour in an afternoon with him and I hope you enjoyed it as well check out his book Captain Perfection it is out right now and I'm going to post the TED talk as well because I think it's important for you to watch that too it kind of summarizes his whole story in a different way and you get to see see him on stage and see how dynamic of a person that he is I want to end this episode by dipping into the archives. The archives of April 2020 and episode 40. Episode 40 happened at a time, okay, think back, a year. April 2020 was when we all were introduced to this virus. We all probably were sent home or at least modifying our work in some way. And we thought we sort of knew what the heck was going on. But now looking back a year later, we had no idea what in the world was happening It's hard for me to even wrap my head around all the unknowns that were happening at that point in time. But at that point in time, I spoke to a woman named Beverly Coulter. And Beverly had just survived COVID 19 on her deathbed in the ICU. She went to hell and back, getting better alone in the ICU. With only the nurses there and the doctors taking care of her, her husband wasn't allowed in. You remember this point in time, no one was allowed in the hospital with you. And she nearly lost her life to COVID-19. But as soon as she felt well enough, she talked to me over the phone this was before I even really knew how to work Zoom. So we talked over the phone and she talked about surviving COVID-19. And the reason she talked about it is because she wanted people to understand what this was. Because we didn't know. We didn't know why this was serious. And, and, and what the heck was happening to our lives at this point. And so Bev gave me an hour of her time and she told this story in an episode of the podcast about how on the last day in the hospital, her nurses gave her a gift. And this is what she had to say. Take a listen.
0: One of the uh, nurses named Heather that I remember on the step-down floor, she said, I hate that you're going to be in here on your birthday. And I said, I know, but hey, I'm here. And she said, if you had your birthday, what would you want? I said, I'm kind of a typical, I don't want the classic diamonds, you know, whatever, I love taco pizza from Casey's. Mm. If you buy me one, I'm your best friend for life. Yeah. And she laughed. Well, the next day, they hinted that I might be going home. I said, you do that, that'd be the best birthday present I've ever got. And one of the other techs said, I know, and we'll be your best friend for life." I mean, they were so friendly and so upbeat. Yeah. My lunch came in at 12 noon. You know, the girls came in to wish me a happy birthday and give me a couple of slices of taco pizza from Casey. Oh wow! Oh, what did you do? I just I, I covered my face because I knew I was gonna cry.
1: <laughs>
0: and she said, "Don't cry, babe. not cry. Don't cry. Don't cry. Come on, really. Everything those girls have to do, everything right. that they're aware of, everything that they have to be cognizant of, and at this the time. I'm gonna cry again. Yeah, I'm, I'm precious, just precious."
1: That's probably the best pizza you had in your life, huh? Oh, yeah.
0: (laughs) Like I said, I can't take all the credit. I'll give it to the doctors and nurses. Right. Foremost, I'll give it to God.
1: The reason that I wanted to play you that clip is because it just got brought to my attention this month that Beverly died. And she told me at the time that she had many other health issues other than COVID-19, which is why she was at such a high risk. Um, And so it broke my heart to hear that a year after surviving COVID-19 that she passed away. And so I just want to express my condolences to her family, to her husband, David, her daughters, Jessica, Julie, and Danielle, and her son, Jim. Bev had 14 grandchildren and seven great grandchildren, plus one on the way. She was incredibly proud of her family. She talks about that on the episode. And so I just want to say I'm so sorry for your loss. And to Bev, you were such a kind soul to give me an hour of your time as you were recovering from this horrible virus. I hate to end on such a sad note, but I feel like that's what we do here on this podcast. We share the good, we share the bad, we share the hard, we share the fun. And that's what makes this such a wonderful mom community, is that we are all here in this shared experience, and we go through the good stuff together, and we go through losses together, and we talk about them. And so that's why I always say, at the end of every show, I say, this is on a mother level. Thank you for listening. Because when it comes to parenthood, we can relate. You have been listening to the WQAD Podcast
0: Network.